Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died. But those who feed on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of the disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So sometime in the 1950s, an old backwoods preacher invited Clarence Jordan, who was a remarkable person, had a farm that actually eventually became a habitat, the beginnings of Habitat for Humanity. Anyway, this backwoods preacher contacted him and said, hey, would you come and preach at my church? And Clarence Jordan said yes. And when he arrived on the assigned Sunday, Jordan was stunned to discover a large racially integrated congregation, a rare thing even today, but particularly in Georgia in the 1950s. Jordan asked the preacher how this had come about. The man said that he'd been, served, been invited to serve as a guest preacher uh, some years before, when the congregation was all white. And he had preached from Galatians. In Christ there is no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. Afterward, the, dirt, the deacons took him to a back room and said uh, he couldn't preach that kind of thing here. What did you do? Clarence Jordan asked. I fired them deacons, he said. How come they didn't fire you? Can't. I was a guest preacher. <laughs> and he came back the next week. The deacons did not. He said, and he said, once I figured out what bothered them people, I kept preaching the same message week after week after week. It wasn't long before I had preached this church down to four. Them four I could work with. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus is a bit like that backwoods preacher. The chapter starts with a, a crowd of thousands, but he has managed to preach it down to just them 12 disciples. 
You know, think about this in light of, say, some of the passages from Paul, in which Paul just sort of revels in the, the cosmic scope of salvation. I mean, the gospel has as its objective the, the, the redemption of all things. It is this new creation being birthed into the existing one. It is not just an ambitious project. It is the project to end all projects. Ambitious doesn't cut it. We need a more ambitious adjective. And here Jesus seems to have lost sight of that. As impressive as an enthusiastic crowd of thousands is, it still counts, constitutes a teensy-weensy fraction of that ultimate objective. It's at least a good start. You would think Jesus would want to build on that momentum, but he doesn't. He throws nails onto the path. He gives his own mission for flat tires. You know, as I've thought about that question there at the end of the chapter, you know, are you two going to leave? I think back to Jesus' first words at the beginning of it. He looks down from the mountain and seeing that needy throng approaching, you know, thousands of them, he turns to Philip and says, so how you plan to feed them? It's such an insane question that John has to explain why Jesus asked it. It's to test Philip. Philip looks at the crowd and the lack of resources and makes the only sane answer one could give to such a bonkers question. Uh, how am I gonna, we, we're gonna feed it. No way. Given that Jesus then goes and, in fact, does feed everyone on just this small little meal, it's safe to assume that what was the only sane answer, what, there was more than a, that answer, and that answer was Jesus, and he failed the test. Now, at the close of the chapter, Jesus puts another question to, to the disciples. And while the arrival of the crowds sparked the first question, the departure of the crowds uh, sparks this, this one. And while the question in the first, in the beginning of the chapter sort of comes out of left field, this question kind of makes sense. Everyone else has had enough of Jesus, but for some reason they're sticking around. Why? But is that why, Jesus asked? Is he just curious? Or is there more to it? Could this question be a test like the first one? Now, if Philip had answered, uh, it would be obvious, right? But it's not Philip who gives this answer. It's Peter. Uh, although, to be fair to Philip, Peter may not have given um, Philip a chance. Because Peter sort of treats being a disciple like being a game show contestant. He's always got his hand above the buzzer ready for, to give the answer. So later when Jesus says, well, who do, they, who do you say that I am? Uh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Yes! Right? Um, and, then, and if he's unable to answer first, he just tries to top everybody's answers. So like in the upper room, Simon's like, oh, uh, we will never betray you. We'll never betray you. And then Peter's like, well, I will, I will even die for you. Right? So he is an eager beaver. An eager Peter. Coining terms. All right. So it's not surprising that he's the first to weigh in at this moment. 
But even Peter, Mr. Buzzer, Mr. Enthusiasm, even Peter seems a little unsure about this. He's having, you can hear in his answer that he's having a hard time reconciling what just happened with what they believe Jesus to be. To whom, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's not a rallying cry of an answer. Of course, the situation doesn't really lend itself to a rallying cry. Both Philip and Peter respond aware that this situation is far from ideal, but Philip's answer was only about the situation. Peter's is like, well, here's the situation, but where else are we going to go? It's you. You know, I've never really been interested in Greek mythology. You might think I'd be, given how often I'm told I have the physique of a demigod. Oh, really? I should check out that Hercules. Sounds interesting. But occasionally, I have those nights where my brain is, uh, feels like there's far too much to think about to waste my time sleeping. And so what I've done recently is go to YouTube and you find a sleep story. Uh, and for a while, I listened to a story in which we take a trip on the Norwegian rail line and go up to the Arctic Circle. I mean, there was a while there, like if you just said the word fjord, I'd fall asleep. I like, anyway, but I find that once I make it all the way through the story, it no longer works. And so I had to switch stories and I switched this one about uh, the Greek gods. And it's interesting, because I've heard like the phrase, oh, they opened a Pandora's box, heard that all over. I, I, I never really knew, knew what that was about. Well, now my, my daughters who were at the service of St. John this morning had to correct me, but they're not here, so I'm gonna, this is the version I get in my sleep story. Uh, but, the, but it's about Pandora, right? She's this real charmer of a gal. Everybody loves her. To know her is to love her. And except for Zeus, who apparently is a jerk. Um, and he gives her this gift, which she's forbidden to open. Well, Pandora's curiosity gets the best of her, and so she opens it. Now, I did learn that there's a good deal of debate how what happens after this, but... Uh, and, and again, the version I heard, I, the box is open and all this terrible stuff comes out. It, it just unleashes sort of hell on earth, famine, disease, Disney sitcoms, all just all out. And Pandora gets her bearings, right? And, and she slaps the lid back down tight again. And she manages to keep one curse from escaping. So there are all these sources of tragedy and death. What remains trapped in the box is foreboding. So it's not another source of tragedy and death. It's what keeps us from realizing all the tragedy and death. You know, I'm used to American mythology. Stories about Paul Bunyan and Calamity Jane. Stories that conclude with something like, well, that's how I got the Grand Canyon. You know, that kind of thing, right? This, this is dark. 
This one, this one concludes with sort of an existential crisis. In other words, because it, it's saying, yes, yeah, suffering is inevitable. It all ends in tragedy. But at least you can kid yourself about it. At least you can still have false hope, a fantasy that things will turn out because that's kept in the box. Not quite sure how that's supposed to make you sleep at night, but. Now I realize my job is to say, yeah, well, you know what? The Greeks had it wrong. Hope isn't, it, isn't an illusion. Life isn't just an inevitable tragedy. But, you know, to do justice to our passage, we can't jump there too quickly. Because this is a story in which people impose their delusions on Jesus. Right? After he feeds that 5,000, they're like, I think he can fix everything. Let's make him king. And Jesus says, don't kid yourself. I'm not here to fuel your fantasy. Once Jesus gets through to them about that, then what happens? Well, he's nothing to them, right? They, he's part of the problem, so they turn and go. They can't see any other option. In, other, in, in a world in which there's tragedy and death and they're inevitable, we want something that sustains our delusions or we move on. If we can't have our delusions, we just have to face the tragedies, and we don't want that. We'll, go, we'll look for another, another illusion. In fact, it is so difficult to move past delusions and fantasies. Jesus says it takes a divine act, a divine intervention, right? No one believes unless the Father draws them. Unless the reality beyond this world of tragedy and sadness, unless something else gets through to you, you can't see it. Seeing the 12 disciples still hanging around, Jesus asks, what about you? Haven't I burst your bubbles too? Are you going to go as well? Basically, Peter's response is, we may not get what just happened here or why you said what you said. You may not be exactly what we want you to be, but we are willing to live with that because something beyond this world of tragedy and death, something real and eternal breaks in through you. So for us, there's nowhere else. That backwoods preacher recognized the fantasy operating in that church a fantasy about racial privilege. They wanted a preacher that baptized the fantasy, made it seem eternal. It was not. And he preached them down to four people who wanted more than a delusion. Part of what makes that story great is that in doing so, something turned around. Eternity was unleashed and, according to the story anyway, created a thriving, integrated congregation at a time and in a place when such things were unheard of, things that remain rare even today. Sometimes it does work that way. Sometimes when you finally let go of the delusion, eternity rushes in. For instance, I think 
every time we genuinely apologize, we're owning up to a fantasy about ourselves. That's the hard part about it. Letting go of the version of ourselves in which all our actions are justified and the problems are all with them, not us. But there's a freedom in apologizing. Sometimes there's even more. There's forgiveness. There's this realization that someone loves you, not the fantasy you try to project of yourself. And in that moment, something from eternity enters into the mix. But that doesn't always happen. Sometimes you own up to the fantasy. Sometimes you apologize and you're just left with the harsh reality. Sometimes it's just hard. I've discovered recently that this fall is not going to look the way I'd hoped. I thought I'd be getting ordained. Instead, I learned that there's an additional requirement, and not a small one. I have to take a class. And I know it's not the Taliban. It's not cancer or a house fire. I don't bring it up because I'm looking for sympathy. I've received plenty. I bring it up because, because of this moment when I was on Zoom with my mentor, advisor. He had called someone on the committee in an effort to understand the decision. And he was doing his best to present what he'd learned. You know, and God bless him for that effort. But the whole time he's talking, I'm thinking, that's it. I've had it with this committee. It's just one thing after another. And it's like my brain went stomping off to some imaginary career fair. And it's going booth to booth, grabbing brochures and free candy. Be a teacher. Yeah, I'm going to teach. No. Family business. Yeah, I'm going to go back and work for my sister. No. Apply for a library job. No. Dig ditches. No. Forgo my freshman through senior years and declare myself el eligible for the NBA draft. No. When a fantasy must die, it feels like a little death, whether it relates to our career, our marriages, our parenting, our friendships, the impulse to walk off, walk away is always there. But where to? Other fantasies? There's plenty of tragedy and death there too. Now, when a fantasy must die, it feels like a little death. When a fantasy must die, we must take it to the one who bears all our delusions, all tragedy, and all death on the cross. The one who knows we don't get it. Who, in fact, when being mocked, says forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. To surrender our delusions feels a bit like death. It hurts. But allowing those delusions to die with Christ opens the portal. It's how eternity, it's how eternal life breaks in. Easter. Resurrection. When and in what way 
is a mystery. The wait can be hard. It often comes much later than we would have wanted or expected. But we stick it out. Why? Well, where else can we go? He has the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that here is the Holy One of God. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen.